Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, I, I've been better. I've been worse. But, you know, I am excited. If nothing else, I will have election results to look at before too long. And we're coming down to the wire. I'm voting today. So uh, a little later than I usually do. But there's a lot of races. And so a lot, a lot to think about and lots of debates to watch and websites to read. I mean, even just choosing who to vote for on the Democratic side of the lieutenant governor's race is a chore. There's nine people to choose from. Right. And it's just, you know, it it is a blessing and a curse because, you know, we could play back the tape of us in 2018 and uh, talking about 2014, though our show was not going yet, of just bemoaning, ah, nobody runs statewide. We need to have a full slate of candidates. And boy... (laughs) Have we accomplished that goal? We have a full slate of candidates on both sides. So, you know, it's a, it's an adventure for sure. Yeah. Thank you everybody for listening to us. I, <clears throat> this state exists to create podcast content. So we really appreciate it. Um, on today's show, we're going to get into somewhat somber subjects. Um, as I'm sure you're all are, are well aware at this point, Politico reported last week that, a leaked draft of a Supreme Court opinion showed that the Supreme Court had voted preliminarily to overturn Roe v. Wade and eliminate the right to abortion that was protected in the Roe v. Wade decision. Politico said at the time that five justices, uh, including Samuel Alito, who wrote the opinion, had, had voted to overturn that decision. I mean, so it is a draft opinion. We're still waiting for the final opinion, but it, it certainly sent shockwaves through our politics. So we're going to talk about the implications of that, both for women's access to reproductive health care and for politics in our state. And then we're going to turn to the primaries uh, that are upcoming this month. Early voting is ongoing at this point. I've already voted. Luke will have voted by the time this podcast airs, but you can vote early. You can look at the MVP page on the Secretary of State's website to find out where your precinct is, find out your voter registration information. Um, And if you're not voting early, you can vote on primary election day, which is Tuesday, May 24th. Um, So we're going to talk about some of those contests that are going on on both the Republican and Democratic sides. But Luke, let's start with this draft opinion from the Supreme Court that uh, looks poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. It's likely, you know, under the normal schedule of Supreme Court operations that the final opinion in this case is going to come out this summer, probably in June. Um, but the draft opinion gave a pretty clear description of where the court was likely headed. If the final opinion is anything like the draft opinion, then it is absolutely ridiculous that in the year 2022, women and and anybody who can get pregnant would have such a fundamental right of determining what to do with their own body taken away from them. And if you're somebody who's outraged about the likelihood of this pending decision, then you can find in our show notes links to abortion funds that you can donate to to support, to help fight back and and preserve access to abortion and other reproductive health care for people in Georgia and people across the country. So with that said, Luke, can you give us an overview of kind of what was in this draft opinion written by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito? 
Yeah, and the first thing I want to do is just call out other resources that I've been paying attention to and I think other people should pay attention to, uh, such as the Strict Scrutiny podcast and uh, Slate's uh, Amicus podcast. Those are really uh, great podcasts, and there's there's lots of other resources here, and they've done really in-depth discussions here, and I don't want to uh, pretend that <laughs> I'm going to be able to hit on those issues nearly as effectively as they can because I think the most useful thing for us to do is focus on what effect this is going to have on Georgia because, you know, uh, that, that is, that is where our expertise lies. And, uh, the other hosts of those podcasts can, can bring up other parts of expertise, including being women, because <laughs> neither of us can have abortion. So we're not, uh, while we are very indirectly affected by this and people in our life are very directly affected by this, where we're not, uh, the best resources for that. So I want to call that out, uh, from the get go, but, and, and you'll find some of those links in our show notes today. Yes, and definitely check those out. But turning to what this does is obviously it directly says words a lot of people never thought the court would say, which is that, you know, we think that Roe versus Wade should be overturned. And I think it is important just to note that this is a draft opinion and it's not the final decision of the court and that these things go through revisions. I will not be shocked if there are revisions to the exact language that's here, but I I, I don't know. They've been working towards this repeal effort for quite some time they've you know broken every norm they possibly could to get this composition of justices on the court so i i will be surprised if they pull back and surprise we didn't actually overturn roe v wade um but that that is the key thing that they have done here is that they have taken what was a right in the constitution out of it and have put it back in the hands of the states to pass laws that prohibit or don't prohibit abortion. I'm going to stop there because um, I could go on and on. So well, where do you want to go with it? Can you describe for us a little bit of some of the reasoning behind, you know, some of the reasoning behind the rationale for Roe in the first place and how this decision, this draft decision would undo row in that way. And, and I think that leads us, you can start there. And then I think that leads us into what some of the broader implications are beyond just row, because there were a lot of alarm, alarm bells. If you've, if you've watched coverage or any, anything about this, there were a lot of alarm bells that this decision could have implications beyond just row. But if you'll start with the reasoning in row, and then we'll, we'll turn to that second. Yeah. Well, I think I'm just going to be really elementary here, not because I think anyone is stupid, but just because I know as a lawyer, I can skip steps. So I'm going to be super elemental here just to get to the really important concern we hear. So Constitution has a lot of rights in it. It has specifically a Bill of Rights. And one of those first 10 amendments, which is in the Bill of Rights, is the Ninth Amendment. And the Ninth Amendment says, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage other rights retained by the people. And so what that means is just because a right is not explicitly stated in the Constitution does not mean the right does not exist. And I think I heard on uh, one of the podcasts I recommended, probably the best example of this to think about is that you have the First Amendment, which provides the freedom to speak, speech. It does not say in the First Amendment that you have the freedom to read. But it's pretty obvious, I think, any American, you ask them on the street, can the government ban you from reading a book? I think everyone will agree that no, the government could not do that, even though it's not in the Constitution specifically that they say you can't ban books 
in you know but the school conversation is a different one but <laughs> yeah. just but just like you can't you can't ban there's me, been some flirtations luke, with that right you can't ban me luke boggs from buying a book from a library if someone's selling it because obviously if i have the freedom to say just about anything i want then i could read whatever i want because those are very connected uh rights and so fundamentally just because it's not in the constitution does not mean a hundred percent that it does not exist and so with the uh now i'm gonna go to the 14th amendment so there's several sections to the 14th amendment so i'm just gonna very quickly reference the important one uh which is no state shall enforce any law that which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the united states nor shall any state deprive any person of life liberty or property without due process of law nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of laws this is one of the post-civil war amendments it was aimed primarily in supplementing the prohibition in the 13th amendment of slavery and may, trying to solidify the fact that everyone in the united states had some rights that the government just can't take away and in this has come out several do several doctrines have spread forth from that such as the substantive due process uh arguments um, procedural due process and equal protection of laws so prior to roe and prior to a case called griswold it, it was kind of free reign government was restricting a lot of things that i think today most americans would say the government has no business being in specifically griswold was contraception then there's loving v virginia which got rid of miscegenation laws which prevented interracial couples etc etc and all of these cases are rooted in the substantive due process clause which basically says that there are some right, some rights that are fundamental rights that no matter how hard the government tries to convince you that this is a reasonable regulation of this thing, it just isn't. And so, uh, miscegenation, you know, preventing interracial marriages is one of those things. And the reason why is because the court just can you know considers that to be a fundamental right that you can't really have life liberty and property rights in a way that's meaningful without having the right to marry who you want there's also cases along these lines of raising your kids who you want you know let you know if you want to teach your kids german you want to take them you know let them go to a school where they can learn german you can't stop them from doing that that's a you know that's a case um there there's all these rights and uh, a lot of them are on the line that roe comes from are based in privacy this goes back to the fact that there is not the word, you know, privacy in the Constitution, but there are a lot of different uh, provisions such as, you know, not forcing, you know, not uh, allowing you to have to have troops in your home if you don't want to quarter them. There's all these rights that come that are tangential to privacy, but don't explicitly say it. And so that's where they get contraception from. That's where Lawrence v. Texas, which allows uh, same-sex sexual relations without the government interference. All these things are not specifically in the Constitution, but the court has interpreted them as fundamental rights that are heavily inferred by the Constitution. And similarly, Roe comes out of that which is a you know private decision between a doctor and a patient and the decision of what to do with one's body is something that in row they said was a fundamental right that you could not abridge on 
And so that's the source of Roe initially. In this opinion, Alito takes pains to say that this is an opinion on its face that is restricted to the right to access abortion care. But there are references to all of these other cases. You mentioned Griswold focused on contraception, uh, the Obergefell decision that legalized same-sex marriage. There's references to these other cases, and there's this rationale that you've described on these unenumerated rights. There's been a lot of focus on what the implications of this decision could mean. If it comes down the way that it's written, there's been a lot of implications there's been a lot of concern about the implications for these other rights. How, you know, how alarmed are you that the rationale here, if it becomes the final decision, could be used to go after these other rights and 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 basically, you know, really change the way the the government considers a lot of personal decisions, the way you conduct your life personally, that people believe are personal, that now may be subject to regulation by the government. So the the place where I'd start is I purposely did not mention the gay rights decision, the gay marriage decision, because that comes after Roe and it is built upon the exact same foundation that Roe is built upon. And that right, all of these rights that I was talking about in the substantive due process uh, clause are at risk because of the logic that Leo adopts here. What Aligo is saying here legally is that for a substantive due process right to exist, it needs to be deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and impl- implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, which is from a case uh, called Washington v. Glucksburg, 1997. The issue with that is the Constitution never mentions women. <laughs> The Constitution mentions slavery, and at you know the time of the writing of the Constitution, of the initial Constitution, the idea of selling people and forcing them to have children and breaking up family units of slaves was something that was totally understood to be 100% okay to do. And so, you know, the United States does not have a lot of good things deeply rooted in its history and tradition uh, pre-1860s that we would want to keep basing our, you know, government on and our way of life on. And so Aliga opens this door that says, if it's not deeply rooted in the traditions of the United States, then it cannot be right. And so the obvious conclusion of that is, well... (laughs) You know, gay marriage, definitely not deeply rooted. Interracial marriage, definitely not deeply rooted. So he is trying to, you know, say, whoa, whoa, don't worry. And the way that he says that is, quote, the abortion right is also critically different from any other right that this court has held to fall within the 14th Amendment's protection of, quote, liberty. Road defenders characterize the abortion right as similar to the rights recognized in past decisions involving matters such as intimate sexual relations, contraception, and marriage, but abortion is fundamentally different as both Roe and Casey acknowledge because it destroys what those decisions called, quote, fetal life and what the law now before us describes as an, uh, quote, um, unborn human being, end quote. And so the thing that he's trying to say there is that there is this unique distinction in Roe and Casey that makes it more paramount, I guess, for them to overturn it, that 
highlights the deep wrongness of the decisions as you know egregiously wrong is the phrase that he uses which is a very rare phrase in legal jurisprudence um that's really you know was uh, previously used for plessy v ferguson so the thing i think is the natural conclusion to this is that Illigo has opened the door and it's not very clear to me how far they're willing to go with it but I think it's pretty clear that because this opinion does not make sense unless they keep relying on the Glucksburg history and tradition test, deeply rooted in history and tradition, that this means that he has opened the door to these fights happening. Now, has he made it clear that the court's going to say, oh yeah, now we can, you know, the government can regulate uh, contraception and uh, gay marriage is off the table because it's not deeply rooted. I don't know is my honest answer, but he's at least opened the door to it. Whereas if you are a conservative and you want to challenge gay marriage, you want to challenge contraception laws, you're not going to get laughed out of a district court or an appeals court when you try to bring it up. And it, it's far more likely for these questions to get up to the Supreme Court because they have so clearly opened the door because you could honestly say as a sane human being and not be, you know, seeing as crazy that the Supreme Court has just made it clear that substantive due process rights need to be deeply rooted in the histories and traditions of the United States and gay marriage is not deeply rooted in the history and traditions of the United States. So why is this a substantive due process right now? Well, and I, and I think the fear of people who are concerned about the implications of this decision is Alito can say that abortion is fundamentally different until five Supreme Court justices decide that abortion is not fundamentally different from same-sex marriage or some of these other rights. And many of these justices who are on the court now said that Roe said in their confirmation hearings that Roe was precedent that should be respected. And of course they, you know, Roe was precedent that should be respected until five Supreme Court justices decide that Roe is not precedent that should be respected. You can you can see them making commitments that they then go back on. You can watch this happen in real time. And so then it does raise a legitimate question of what other commitments will be rolled back. Um, and, and, and I think that ties in with the sort of like increasingly political nature of the Supreme Court and the way in which both parties, but in particular the Republican Party, has decided that the Supreme Court should be a weapon that is wielded for their partisan political interests. You know, this is the implication of that. This is how it's going to happen. This is what we're watching happen in, in real time. You know, and the, the reason that this matters functionally and the, and the thing that drives towards our place of more expertise is the importance of governors and state legislatures is the way that this happens functionally is states pass laws that then get challenged in court. They may be patently unconstitutional at this point, like, Georgia's current six-week abortion ban is, but then the Supreme Court, you know, changes hands, changes opinions, and these laws that were once unconstitutional become constitutional. And so it is now sort of in, the ball is in the court of state legislatures and governors to decide what pieces of legislation they want to pursue that would undo these rights. And so there's sort of two buckets to look at this, I think, is one is the implications for access to reproductive health care, abortion services specifically, but related services like contraception and uh, other 
issues in this space, like the right to travel to get an abortion in a place where it would remain legal, whether or not conservative state legislatures feel emboldened to try to put more laws, more regulations in place to restrict access to abortion care, not only within the state where it is illegal, but in other places where abortion remains legal. And that becomes a political question. That becomes a question of what do Republican lawmakers believe they have the political capital, the political support to pursue, and how aggressive they feel like they can be. And so to to turn to what sort of like the reality of abortion care in Georgia would be if this draft opinion becomes the final decision of the court, it seems likely that Georgia's current ban on abortion, which is a ban when cardiac activity is detected in an embryo that is typically at about six weeks, it's also before many women know that they're pregnant, that is the law that is currently in place. It is not in effect because it is held up at the appeals court level, but it seems likely, and uh, and Anthony Michael Christ, who's a constitutional law professor at, at Georgia State, he's also your former professor too, right, Luke? Yes. yes. Um, he's been quoted in the not, media. Not law professor, though. I am an undergrad. Uh, um, you know, he's been quoted in the media. He believes that the ban that is currently held up in court would go into effect shortly after this decision was to come down if it comes down the way that it does now. But that may not be the final word. You know, when you look at Republicans running for office today, you've got all of the candidates for U.S. Senate on the Republican side, all of the candidates for lieutenant governor on the Republican side. Uh, you've also got David Perdue, who have all said that they would support total ab- total bans on abortion with no exceptions. And David Perdue has even gone so far as to say that if you get this final Supreme Court decision in June, that Governor Kemp should call a special session of the legislature to pass a total abortion ban that would go beyond the ban that would go into effect following this decision from the Supreme Court. And so I think to turn to the politics of this, Luke, it seems clear that access to abortion care in Georgia and in a lot of other conservative states is going to basically be non-existent. Whether you have a total ban in place, whether you have the Georgia six-week ban in place, which advocates say is effectively a total ban, um, and so the, the remaining question to me is how much further do legislatures and governors feel that they can go on passing additional restrictions? You know, what are, what is some of the vulnerability there about what this would mean for abortion access to abortion care, both in Georgia and outside of it? I wish I had a more astute analysis than this, but I'm going to start with saying it's going to be a dumpster fire. Uh, I, I think what's really clear to me is that there's going to be a lot of states, Mississippi, Louisiana, other places like that, that are going to push the ball further in a Missouri looks like one of the most aggressive right now. Yeah, in a reactionary direction uh, than Georgia will because it is unquestionably more politically fraught for Georgia politicians to push these things because... Unlike Mississippi and Missouri, we have a lot of 
national, international businesses in Atlanta that will not like these laws, that will not like abortion bans, period. And I think it was all, when it was hypothetical, people were far less concerned about the abortion uh, bills in Georgia because they knew and were correct that they were not going to be allowed to be uh, enforced immediately and that it was, you know, basically just you know, words on a page that said you couldn't do these things, but the court was not going to let them actually do them. And so when this stops being hypothetical and, you know, a bill potentially hits Kemp's desk that bans all abortions, no exceptions, which is exactly what every candidate running for the United States Senate uh, in Georgia on the Republican side says they want, if that bill hits his desk, it's not going to be as easy for him to not sign it now than it was when this was all hypothetical because there will be a lot more pressure on them so on you know just isolating the abortion issue for a moment i think georgia will have a lot of controversy that previously was political red meat campaign issues that nobody took very seriously and now they're actually going to have the potential of making the actual policy of the state of Georgia significantly different uh, than it was previously. And I don't know how that plays out. What I do know is that Kemp is far more likely to uh, bow to this pressure to take things as far as they possibly can go than Deal was. And I think and, and that's not saying that Kemp has no spying or anything. It's just on these issues, he's actually aligned with it. You know, so it's like, this is kind of what he wants. I don't know if Kemp, has Kemp said anything about exceptions? I, I can't remember. Well, he, his general language has been that he's proud to have passed the toughest abortion ban in the country, which I think is now tied with other states for basically the six-week mark. Um and that he he or allies of his have signaled that a special session to do an outright abortion ban, it's unlikely that a special session would happen. Um, and so I, I don't think he's committed on the policy either way, but he has certainly positioned himself as willing to be among the most anti-abortion governors in the country. And we all know that that arms race is going to go to entirely new levels when the overturning of Roe opens the floodgates for states to try whatever they think is necessary um, to prevent abortions from happening. Yeah, and, you know, this is where, uh, not to be glib, but, you know, the arms race is so strong now, they're going to, you know, preconception abortion bans as well. And I know Mississippi is, I think it was Mississippi's governor, correct me if I'm wrong, but Mississippi's governor said that you know they were uh, he wasn't willing to commit either way if he was going if they would ban contraception or not because there are people in the anti-abortion mo- movement who view IUDs as basically abortion. <laughs> I mean they view, they see it the exact same way and so there will definitely be the floodgates opened for them challenging that and I I don't know how Kemp or the Republican legislatures uh, legislators in uh, Georgia deal with that pressure of, you know, now you don't have your talking point that you have the most aggressive abortion bill in the country. You, you know, n- will look uh, significantly less radical on that front if they just ban abortion because there will be other states going much further than that. Yeah. And so this is where I think there are competing political forces at play that are worth considering here. 
The first is, you know, the trend in Republican politics that we've talked about for a long time is that gerrymandering, restrictions on voting, um, that these approaches to politics by Republicans have made in a lot of places Republican primaries become the de facto general election. That's less true on a statewide level now because Georgia's a much more competitive state, but the way that the state Senate is gerrymandered, there's very little risk that a controversial political move by Republicans in the state Senate would cost them the state Senate majority. Um, They've hardened their state House majority, although that one is a little more competitive than the state Senate is. And so there is runway there for them to pursue politically unpopular initiatives and be insulated against the political blowback if it turns out that those things are very unpopular and very motivating to voters to vote against them. That, I think, in turn contributes to this sort of ever-escalating pressure within Republican primaries for candidates to take stances where, if you elect me, I will ban abortions outright with no exceptions. I will make it illegal for people to travel to other states to get abortion. I will make it illegal for people to use contraception. All of those different avenues are going to be fodder for Republican primaries. And all of this pressure to run to the right in Republican primaries, regardless of what it means for your general election prospects, means that you're going to have candidates on general election ballots who have made ever increasingly aggressive claims about what they would do about abortion if they get elected. On top of that, you're going to have a challenging political environment for Democrats nationally, which means even though there might be public backlash and majority opposition to the adoption or proposal of abortion bans, it's possible that a overridingly negative political environment for Democrats means Republicans are largely successful in the upcoming midterms. And very little of that political pressure is actually even felt on Republicans in competitive races. And so you don't really have the opportunity for public pressure to actually shape the decision of policymakers. So I think that's sort of some of the forces that are on the side of escalating this as high as possible. On the other hand, though, you do have, you know, polling in Georgia showing that the majority of voters support keeping Roe v. Wade keeping abortion access and and polling nationally is pretty clear that large majorities of voters, even majorities of Republicans believe that reproductive decisions should be made between a woman and her doctor and that the government should not be involved. Um, And you did see some of that pressure play out in the Georgia house when they adopted the 2019 abortion ban, the six week ban where they only passed that vote in a, in a chamber where they held a, a decently large majority, they only passed that bill by one vote. Uh, there was a lot of pressure on law, on Republican lawmakers to go against it. And because of the way that they've decided to do redistricting this last cycle, you are necessarily going to have a chamber that is a little more competitive where you have fewer, where you have, fewer Republican votes you can lose and still pass legislation in the House. So you might have a safe majority in the Senate that can pass whatever they want, and they may be super aggressive, but a lot of those things may fail in the House. So I I think those are some of the forces that are at play on both sides of this, and I think it's difficult to see which way it'll play out. 
But if another state goes before Georgia and they pass ever increasingly aggressive laws that are then upheld by the Supreme Court, you could see a lot of pressure for Georgia to be a follower and not necessarily a leader. Um, because, you know, the the decision that the Supreme Court is probably going to overturn Roe on is a, on a abortion ban in Mississippi. And the one in Texas has been the one that's garnered the most headlines because of its unusual enforcement mechanism that's really stopped it from being challenged. I think Texas is currently the only state in the country that has a six week abortion ban in effect because of, you know, strange legal maneuvering. So I think, I think those are some of the issues at play about how unpredictable this is, but it is, I think going to contribute to really making Georgia politics much nastier. Um, Like that was a problem. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> we've come a long way since 2014 where this was kind of a, a friendly endeavor we were all a part of and, and now it's kind of a shit show. So, yeah. And the, the other thing I think is important to mention at this junction, because we specifically limited this, you know, discussion to abortion is that gay rights, gay marriage, all of those things are are just as likely to be the subject of very controversial bills that basically burn down the gold dome every session now, because I mean, to sort of soft transition to <laughs> talking about all these primary races, you know, the, I, I was watching the Lieutenant governor's race on the GOP side. And I mean, Butch Miller basically campaigned on the fact that he passed a anti-transgender athlete bill. And that was his major talking point and that's really any time that they gave him an open-ended question where he was going to do the i'm butch miller and i it was always and i passed the you know tough anti trans bill in georgia uh and so now that there's signs from the court that you're actually going to be able to make these into real bills without having as much scrutiny i think the floodgates of that kind of campaigning but also that kind of legislation is is going to open because especially in the trump era i have noticed that there is a trend of bond people who have not been endorsed by donald j trump to try to out conservative the people who are so that you know it's like well he you know trump endorsed him but let me tell you i'm the real crazy person in this race uh you know it's kind of the tone uh that butch miller has adopted for sure uh and i i think that's only going to get worse that dynamic is only going to get worse when you don't have the, well, the Supreme Court, you know, argument to fall back on where a lot of Republicans have. Now it's it's a lot more real. Yeah, I actually think we should dive right into the Republican lieutenant governor's primary as a part of our transition to looking at primary elections here. Because, you know, at this point today, Brian Kemp is the person who is going to be kind of the bulwark against Republicans overreaching he's going to be the one that kind of has to ultimately make the decision whether or not to sign or veto laws, whether or not to back them or try to kill them in the legislative process. But Brian Kemp will not be governor forever. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know. You know, I'm not sure Brian Kemp would want to be governor forever. He, he after definitely the last would four not. Years. <laughs> like to, to, to be fair, you know, jokes aside, I don't think he would. I'm not, that. I'm not sure it's been a really fun four years for him, but but I think that's why it's instructive to then look at Republican primaries for lieutenant governor or secretary of state or key legislative primaries, because those are the people that are going to run for governor on the Republican side. 
I mean, Butch Miller in particular looks just like tailor made to be a lieutenant governor for a cycle or two if he's to win and then use that as a launching pad to become the governor. A, because the lieutenant governor is the worst job in politics where you have no power and it's probably a terrible job to have, although it'd be better for him because it'd be leading the state Senate, a chamber that he's already practically a leader of. Um, and so I did think it was notable that you have in the Lieutenant governor's race on the Republican side, you have Burt Jones, who's a state Senator. He served in the state Senate for about a decade. He got the Trump endorsement and he got it largely because he has been one of the people most out front on saying that the, there was fraud in the 2020 election, that it needed to be reviewed, that these court cases needed to move forward. And that, uh, you know, at various times, I, you know, he's implied if he's not outright said that that Donald Trump should have gotten the electoral votes from Georgia because of all this fraud that he's presented without, you know, without evidence. I mean, it's the ongoing trend of what we've seen from other people. And yet he's going up against Butch Miller primarily. There's two other candidates in this race, but it's probably these two that are the most competitive. And Butch Miller has laid out a litany of conservative issues that he has led on. And so I thought it was notable in the Atlanta Press Club debate, they were all, all the candidates were asked, you guys have run really far to the right in this primary. You have put your conservative bona fides up there as far as anyone else. But this is a 50-50 Republican state that Joe Biden, Raphael Warnock, and John Ossoff just won in the last election cycle. How do you think that that's going to play in the electoral environment you're walking into? And not one of them nodded to that reality they openly, you know, pledge that they believe that all of these conservative issues that they've run on, whether it's uh, siphoning money away from public schools or banning transgender athletes from competing in high school competitions, um, election integrity and, and their views of unsubstantiated election fraud, that all of those issues that they've worked on are actually issues that a majority of Georgians agree with them on. And so they believe that going to the hard right is still going to win them elections. Um, and that's, I think, what contributes to this arms race on abortion and on other issues, that there's just little guardrails to hold them back from being as aggressive as possible. Because until they lose elections, they're not going to feel like this has been bad for them. Yeah, I... I'd so I don't know if you have other thoughts about the, you know, the lieutenant governor's primary and, and how that's going to play out or, or what you think of this dynamic. No, I, I think you're exactly right that it is difficult to see what will restrain these folks because everything in the dynamics of the primary pushes them in this direction. And I mean, I think it's the, the unsaid thing here that I think is worth re-mentioning is the fact that Jeff Duncan is the current lieutenant governor and he could have ran for re-election there's no term limit there's you know no uh health issues we're aware of like he's a young dude like everything seems to be fine uh with him and that he could have kept this job and uh you know he doesn't seem like he hated it <laughs> and i i think it's pretty clear to me that he did not want to run in this environment and to have to take the positions that were probably necessary for him if he wanted to win this race and he also didn't want to lose this race uh so i yeah i i think that is really important to point out because that to me 
solidifies that you know that that is why Jeff Duncan is not in this race is because that is the dynamic because it's not like he was facing a lot of the anti uh, you know um he wasn't facing a lot of the big lie Trump backlash. That was all pointed primarily at Kemp and Raffensperger. So it's not like that he just decided not to go against a Trump endorsed uh, candidate on a blood feud <laughs> race about that. Like he just, to me, at least seemed like he didn't want to be part of this climate. And I can't really blame him uh, because, yeah, I, I found it really uh, telling that they just didn't even acknowledge the fact that half of the state is legitimately not super conservative. They they refuse to think that. I mean, they just refuse to even think of that at all. And I, I think that's really a sad development in the politics of Georgia because that is the biggest change that I've seen since 2014 is that both parties are less interested in talking to folks on the other side, but it's it's far, far, far worse on the Republican side, uh, as we've seen nationally. And, and it just it all plays into, I think, the fact that if they had answered that question in a more conciliatory and genuine way, then they would have to acknowledge the fact that Donald Trump, uh, you know, lost Georgia. And I, I think that is a big part of why they are unwilling to engage in that question and probably will be unfortunate. Uh, um, probably unfortunately will be unwilling to engage with that reality uh, when one of them is actually Lieutenant Governor. In terms of gaming out how this race might go, Burt Jones is sort of the, the more Trump aligned candidate. And he interestingly has sort of aligned himself with David Perdue on some issues. He previously had supported Rivian, the electric vehicle manufacturer who is going to relocate to the town of Rutledge in, in Morgan County. Uh, he had previously issued a statement that he was supportive of that uh, Rivian coming to town. Um, that is, it's also within Burt Jones's current district in the state Senate. Um, he has since removed that statement from his social media. He has advised some of the anti-Rivian demonstrators in the area about how to fight that development and, um, and he was critical of the state providing tax incentives to Rivian to come to the state um, and, and create these jobs and, and create this economic development. He was critical of that move during the Atlanta Press Club debate. Um, there are fair debates to have about tax incentives and economic development, but I thought what was notable about that to me is that issue, I think, is not really about the different philosophical views of tax incentives and economic development it is sort of more of a signaling wedge issue among conservatives that the people who are Trump aligned, David Perdue and Burt Jones, have picked this as an issue to elevate how they are Trump aligned and how they are opposed to sort of the establishment structure of Republican politics. Whereas Butch Miller sort of exemplifies the establishment nature of Republican politics. He was super polished in the debate. I, I mean, I was most impressed with, you know, the way the Atlanta Press Club debates work is there's a series of questions from the moderators, and then you do a segment where candidates ask each other questions. And it's always interesting, I think, to look at how candidates approach those. Butch Miller had the tightest 
multi-pronged criticism of Burt Jones in a question that I've ever heard. He hit him on like six different issues in a question and then basically ended with like, how do you respond to that? <laughs> because, And it was like super effective. And you could tell in that that he is polished. He's good at this. Um, but he is a representative, I think, of the more establishment wing of the party. Burt Jones is leading in polls. Uh, he's got about 27% of the support from Republican voters, Republican primary voters, according to an April AJC poll. Butch Miller trails. He's got about 14% of the vote. But notably, more than half of Republican primary voters were undecided in that poll. So it's still unclear about how that election is going to turn out. But those are some of the dynamics at play. And given that there's four candidates, it seems likely that that's an election that goes to a runoff. Yeah, I, I think that's almost guaranteed just from how many candidates are in the race. And even though only two of them are legitimately viable, I, I think neither of them have a chance of getting 50% plus one in this current dynamic, at least. Mostly because the Trump endorsement doesn't appear to be worth half the Republican primary vote. And I think most people just haven't tuned into this race yet. Yeah, not in Georgia, at least. It's It's been interesting seeing how it's played out in other states, but that's that's a conversation for another day. Let's stay on the Republican primary side here, but move over to Secretary of State. This is also fits within the frame of a Trump-aligned challenger versus a more establishment uh, candidate who has been the subject of extensive criticism from, from President Trump, former President Trump and his allies, incumbent Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger uh, just took a you know heaping amount of criticism from Trump following the 2020 election. You know you may remember that it was Trump that called Raffensperger, asking Raffensperger to find him what I think like 11,000 votes or something like that at the time, and Raffensperger refused. And then Raffensperger has been the person to blame for all of the perceived failures of Georgia's election system. He's being challenged by the current congressman in the 10th congressional district, Jody Heiss, who's leaving that seat to challenge Raffensperger for secretary of state. And then also in this race is David Bell Isle, who lost the runoff to Raffensperger in 2018 and is, is back for another shot at this. The Atlanta press club debate, Luke was a wild affair between these three. And, and there's a fourth candidate, TJ Hudson, who was inexplicably wearing a cowboy hat at the debate. Um, this was a wild affair where these guys really went at each other. You know, the, the Atlanta press club debates are usually pretty tame and the, these guys were yelling at each other. They were lobbing criticism back and forth because this is a job that is largely focused on election administration. The entire thing was about the perceived failures in the election. What do you think about this race? Well, I, I mean, I'm sure we could play back audio and we shouldn't because <laughs> it'll embarrass me uh, of just how much I thought that Heist had this in the bag and that Raffensperger was not putting up a defense in the way that Kemp was. But I, I think that's changed a lot. And, you know, unfortunately, it's, I think, based off of Raffensperger finding election wedge issues and using the completely unnecessary because it's already illegal in Georgia to... Uh, vote if you're a non-citizen issue because he's, I mean, made that his primary issue that he's making it, you know, he's supporting a law that will make it illegal for non-citizens to vote, which already is illegal. 
so I, I think that's been a big help to him because he sort of has taken the election issue and he's like, I'm going to do something new about it where Jody Heiss is just, you know, looking backwards. And I think also the Trump grievance train in Georgia has been entirely limited to the election issue of looking backwards at 2020 and saying they did Trump dirty and they should have just given him the election. And I, I think the this is far less effective just because of how conservative our government has been and how conservative Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger are. And so I think the fact that this debate was a dumpster fire of them just screaming at each other is unsurprising to me because of the fact that there isn't much substantive to go on in pursuing this line of attack because it's not like we have a government full of rhinos. I think, you know, if we were talking about Governor Casey Cagle, like it, I think this would be a lot more effective, but these are very conservative elected officials who have performed very their jobs in a very conservative manner. And so I think that is just very emblematic of why the only thing they have is the very raw grievance to campaign on. And I, I'm not shocked that's where they went with it. Let's move over here to the Democratic side and talk about the Democratic race for lieutenant governor. Uh, the entire state of Georgia is running for lieutenant governor on the Democratic side. Um, there are officially nine candidates that include several state lawmakers. And some of them dropped out. So, <laughs> you know, like, I just want to point that out. When you say there's nine, that's only because some of them dropped out. Um, so some some state lawmaker names that might sound familiar, Eric Allen, Renita Shannon, Derek Jackson have all spent time in the state legislature. Charlie Bailey was the 2018 Democratic nominee for attorney general. Uh, he is in this race. Tyrone Brooks Jr., who uh, works for the city of Atlanta and is the son of a longtime state lawmaker, Tyrone Brooks, he's also in this race. Um, Kwanzaa Hall, who I believe is on the Atlanta City Council, he is in this race. Um, a lot of candidates here. Um, this was an interesting debate to me, Luke, mostly because the thing that I feel about this race is it it fails to grapple with a Democratic lieutenant governor leading a Republican-run state Senate is basically a job with zero duties. Like, yes, you will preside over the chamber. I believe the only real powers of the lieutenant governor that the Republicans could not strip would be to preside over the chamber and to deal with parliamentary inquiries on the floor of the chamber. Um, and so what you saw in this race or what you saw in this debate was a lot of them agreeing generally on general democratic principles that they support. And then I think one of the key questions that got asked to all these candidates in this debate was there was a lot of criticism from both Democrats and Republicans that when the state Senate passed Senate Bill 202, which was the election restriction legislation, Jeff Duncan stayed in his office and he did not preside over the vote. And all these candidates on the Democratic side were asked, if you were in Jeff Duncan's shoes, what would you have done to deal with Senate Bill 202? And at the time, Jeff Duncan, if he had the political support, could have 
put legislation that he opposed in a committee that would bottle it up and never let it out. But of course, Jeff Duncan didn't have that political support for Senate Bill 202. And further, if one of these Democrats is elected lieutenant governor, it's very unlikely that Republicans would allow that person to continue to have the power to assign legislation to committees where it could be bottled up or to even seat committees to in the way that they prefer um, for all of the committees or for at least all of the committees that the Republicans consider important. And so it, you know, I had a tough time thinking about who I would vote for in this race, because I think you have a lot of good, strong Democrats in this race, but I'm not sure that any of them are really at least publicly engaging with the idea of how you could be effective in this role if you're basically stripped of all your power. And that I think is sort of the the central question to this race from the democratic side, because there's just no chance and not even the Democrats are saying that the Democrats could control the state legislature. Even if there's a democratic wave in this election, it's unlikely they could take the state legislature. And so that I think is sort of a frame to me about this race that is like, you know, it's, I mean, it's sometimes them, hard to grapple with. I was going to say, one of them said what their real job is, which is to stand there and be alive in case something ever happened to the governor. Because <laughs> that, is, that is truly what their job will be. But I, I think that underestimates the unofficial, informal role of the job because having just the title of lieutenant governor does give you some credibility when you walk into a room and you try to rally the Democrats to do something, or if you, uh, you know, are trying to make a compromise, maybe you have no formal power, but if you're good at the job, the fact that you're just there and you say, I'm the Lieutenant governor, uh, you know, trust me when I say that I can get the votes for X, like you have a lot more legitimacy than if you're just a state house rep or a state senator or an unelected <laughs> Democrat roaming the Capitol. And so, you know, even if they remove some of the power uh, that they have, I, I think it, it does matter which Democrat is in that seat because you can work with people. You Relationships do matter. And as, you know, controversial and uh, cantankerous as I'm sure the next couple sessions are going to be, I would much rather have a Democrat there, even if all they have is the bully pulpit and can, you know, talk to the AJC and say, I don't support this bill. I don't think we should be doing this. That's much better than having someone say, yeah, this bill's great. And we should, you know, uh, ban all abortions anytime, no exceptions. Like I would much rather have a lieutenant governor, you know, that does not want those things to happen and someone who uh, can be a partner to a Democratic governor and Democratic other state elected officials or just be a, you know, even if that's the only seat we got for some reason, you know, that's the only seat we got statewide and had a Democratic lieutenant governor working with Republicans. Well, I am sure there are some, you know, indirect benefits that would, would come from that. And I, I, I'm frustrated that the debate did not acknowledge that as much. And they did what everyone does when they're campaigning for office, which is significantly oversell the powers of their office, because it is truly frustrating to me listening to that debate, watching that debate, hearing them promise they're going to pass all of these bills, because I think this comes back to where we started in that lots of times Democrats 
especially I'd say in the past eight years or so, they overpromise so much when they're campaigning and they underdeliver. And I think that just sets us up for failure because when this draft opinion happened, came out uh, that we spent, you know, our whole beginning of the show talking about, like I knew exactly what was going to happen after that. The Chuck Schumer was going to be all flustered and enraged and say, you know, this is unacceptable and we're going to pat, you know, we're going to, you know, vote on a bill to, codify Roe and it failed because that's all we can seemingly do is to put up things, take positions that fail and there's no interest in actually building up the political power and support to pass things anymore. I think this is a natural consequences of all of our federal leadership being over twice my age almost you know, like one point you know almost you know you could give another half of my age to them i mean they're very old very very old and looking to the future is naturally a little harder when your time horizon is not as long and i think that is emblematic and seeing in this conversation of uh this this office because there was no discussion of how I as lieutenant governor am going to get enough votes to pass a thing. They just said, I'm going to, you know, codify protections for abortion or pass Medicaid expansion. Well, it's like, I will say, how will you get the votes? Yeah. I will say real quickly, just Charlie Bailey, I think gave the most reasonable answer in that vein, specifically on Medicaid expansion saying that you specifically needed six Republican votes to pass Medicaid expansion in the Senate and that he would go to those people from districts where their hospitals had closed, they have limited access to health care, and they would rally constituents in that district to put pressure on those Republicans to say, we need this to save the health care systems in our community and the community that you represent. And I, you know, it is possible. And I love that answer because that's a good answer because that is, now, will it be successful? I don't know, but it's a lot more successful than just, you know, declaring from the mountaintops that you're going to pass Medicaid expansion. It is at least a strategy that's built on pressuring lawmakers from supports, you know, you know, building a movement to do something rather than just pretending like what matters most is my butt in that chair. And that, that dynamic is just so frustrating to me in Democratic politics right now because there is a acknowledgement from anyone who knows how the process actually works that that is not enough. Having the bug in the chair is not enough because of how the system currently works. And doing something different than just getting elected is obviously necessary, but for whatever reason, it seems very difficult for Democrats to think through those strategic uh, necessities, whereas the conservative coalition is a lot better at that and a lot better at not only making sure that they have you know, the title, but the actual power that goes with it. And so to maybe help, and, and Luke, you can disagree with this if, if you do, but to maybe help frame some of this for people as they're thinking about who they might vote for, in my view, Renita Shannon is probably the most progressive candidate on the lieutenant governor side. I would agree. Um, and <laughs> she she described in the debate how she you know had uh, put her body on the line to defend access to abortion and reproductive health care. You know, she did that literally in the Senate by 
going beyond her allotted time and did that in demonstrations. I think she deserves tremendous praise for that. Um, and she has been a leader on that issue and, and has been sort of a, a voice of conscience on a lot of these issues and in, in democratic politics. Um, Charlie Bailey is probably the most viable statewide candidate based on the fact that he did run for attorney general and was, you know, I think one or two points shy of beating Chris Carr in 2018. He's a good fundraiser. He even said as sort of the second piece of his answer about what to do on Medicaid expansion, as he said, he'd try to rally those six votes by talking to people in those districts. And if that failed, then he would turn around and he would raise money to beat these Republican senators and get a Democratic majority in the chamber. I mean, his ability to fundraise and have viable campaigns, I think, is a testament to that. Eric Allen, I thought he was the one who maybe clear, most clearly acknowledged that a Democratic lieutenant governor was going to have to work with a Republican uh, majority Senate and had a lot to say about how he was effective in the minority in the House, particularly as it relates to that uh, sterogenics facility that was emitting the cancer-causing chemicals and how he'd worked in the legislature to pass more stringent requirements and he'd been active in the community on that. Um, you know, For the sake of full disclosure, I voted for Eric Allen, I think based largely on that experience in the House and the way he'd approached that issue as a proxy for what I believe how he could be an effective lieutenant governor as a part of a Republican uh, led state Senate. Um, you know, and, and I think that is meaningful if you have a Governor Abrams and a Lieutenant Governor Allen, where you are going to have things like the budget that you have to have compromise on and you're going to want an effective operator in that chair. I think those are the three leading candidates, not to discount the others. Um, but I think the others probably have lower name ID, less relevant experience. Um, you know, because of how many candidates are in this race, it's probably one that's going to go to a runoff and Democrats will get a little bit of a cleaner choice between two candidates in a runoff. Um, but that's just sort of maybe the, the general frame I'd put around that race as it stands today. I think I agree. And then lastly here, I think probably the most interesting Democratic primary in this state is in the Georgia 7th Congressional District. This is the primary between uh, two current members of Congress, Congresswoman Carolyn Bordeaux, who's the current representative of the 7th District, Congresswoman Lucy McBath, who's the current representative of the 6th District, but left the 6th to uh, go challenge Bordeaux in the 7th because she was basically gerrymandered out of the 6th. Um, I think she still lives in the district, but Republicans drew that to be a safe Republican district. And then uh, Donna McLeod is a state lawmaker uh, who can actually make the claim that she is the only one who lives in the current boundaries of the district. The only one that can vote for herself, which I thought was a fun line. It was a fun line. Um, and I, real quick on that, I actually thought that she did the best job of creating the frame for the Atlanta press club debate that actually was reflected in the coverage. The idea that, uh, members of Congress are just playing musical chairs with districts and are going to sit wherever they feel like they can win when the music stops. Uh, you know, that is kind of what happened here. Um, Though I think it's far less fair applied to Bordeaux than the yeah, Cause yeah. it, it is mostly Bordeaux's old district. Right. And I think she's like, 
a couple miles outside the district. You know, she lived in it when it was, it's a, it's a district that shrunk because of population growth in Gwinnett County. And so I think the shrinking of the district put her slightly outside of it, but you know, she's represented this area uh, over the last two, a couple years in Congress. Not to mention she ran for it two years prior. So she, she's been working the district a good, good bit. Yeah. And I, I think that comes to my first point about my takeaway from the debate and how I feel about this race. In some ways I feel bad for both Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bordeaux. You know, this is, they were put into this primary because of the way Republicans redistricted and neither of them had a role in that. And so I could understand Lucy McBath making a pretty snap decision to go to a district where she can win. And I do think that she's the favorite in this race. Um, And I think because of her personal story, because of her advocacy around gun safety, she has been an effective member of Congress and it is, it is beneficial to Georgia Democrats to have her remain in Congress But I also feel a little bit bad for Caroline Bordeaux because as we found out between 2016 and 2020, it turned out that the harder district to flip was the seventh. Caroline Bordeaux was the one who did the most work to flip that district by winning a competitive Democratic primary in 2018, barely losing the general to Rob Woodall in 2018, and then coming back and being the only Democrat in the country to flip a a house seat from Republican to Democrat in the 2020 cycle. She's put in the work to have that district represented by a Democrat. And I feel like she is, you know, justified in being a little bit aggrieved that Lucy McBath can then just parachute in and and kind of take the seat from her. And I thought it was notable in the debate, Luke, that that really is the difference between these candidates because they largely agree on the issues And Lucy McBath, I guess, has made a decision that she's not going to frame this as a more progressive Democrat versus less progressive Democrat primary, Um, even though I think that argument is there and I think that argument is fair. Yeah, I I actually will just point out I'm genuinely shocked that that was not the frame. When I that that was the most surprising thing about that debate for me. Yeah. And so what tell me more about that. What did you think about? the way the debate went and and how that has become the kind of the dividing line between the two candidates. Yeah. So I think the most notable thing about it, you've already hit the the two most notable things. You've already hit the first one, which is Bordeaux was very critical and I thought very effective on hitting McBath on like you could have stayed and fought for your district. Sure. They moved it. Sure. It would have been hard. Sure. You probably would have lost, but you effectively we're the only person that could have won that seat that they remade. And by leaving it, you have left it to the Republicans and, and you gave them a seat. You helped Kevin McCarthy's majority uh, get bigger. And I, I think that was a very effective line of attack combined with the fact that I think Lucy McBath did, and every politician does this to some extent, but this was just such a blatant, I would actually put it on Marco Rubio level of you had a set line and talking point, And no matter what the question was, you were going to answer it this way. Cause they could have asked Lucy McBath about the weather. She would have answered with her personal story and telling the, you know, horrible, legitimately a important thing to discuss talking point of her son being shot and her becoming a advocate for 
gun control and other issues that affected her and her son's life. But when the question is, what is your response to people who say you're focused too much on your personal story and why should they elect you in this district and what can you bring to this district going immediately into your pre-scripted, here's my personal story, let me tell you why it's so important, when the basis of the question is, some people think you you focus too much on your personal story without like acknowledging that criticism, I think, was really ineffective. And to me, the thing I came away from that debate was it was surprisingly absent of policy, and it was really more about the what type of congresswoman do you want? Do you want... Lucy McBath, who is a fierce advocate, who really cares about these couple policy issues, who's been a f very effective at pushing them both inside and outside of Congress and has made this part of a discussion in Georgia that otherwise would not be happening. And she deserves a ton of credit for that because she is very effective on these issues that a lot of Democrats are terrified of even touching with a 10-foot pole. Or do you want Carolyn Bordeaux, who quite obviously is more in tune to this specific district, quite obviously more, you know, thoughtful about a bunch of issues all around, um, you know, how all around the state, but also very specifically to that district. It, it's quite clear that she is connected to that and that she is more focused on being, a uh she answered the questions a lot more directly she engaged with the questions a lot more directly i thought and she she clearly in my opinion comes off as someone who is trying to represent the district whereas lucy mcbath is trying to represent her set issues and there's nothing wrong with that like i think that's actually great and i wish people were more explicit about that a lot of times um and the thing that I was so surprised about is the fact that the policy differences and the approaches that both of them have taken to Congress was not more at the forefront of that debate because Lucy McBath has obviously been uh, more progressive and, and has been more of a activist issue-oriented uh representative whereas uh, Bordeaux was one of the people who has been seen as you know trying to push for more moderation more bipartisan bipartisanship and while they touched on that a little bit with Bordeaux they didn't go nearly as deep as I was expecting with it well it was Donna McLeod who brought it up right it wasn't even Lucy McBeth that's why I'm I'm a little bit frustrated by the approach that Lucy McBeth has taken to this race not because I don't think, you know, I, I think her her personal story and her advocacy more than qualifies her to be a very effective member of Congress. I kind of get the impression that she is trying this sort of very low risk, low participation, just get elected on my name and my story approach. Um, and I you know, I, I think that the, the voters of the seventh congressional district deserve a little more than that. And I think it, the opening was there to say, I believe that I should come in and be the representative over Carolyn Bordeaux because Carolyn Bordeaux has repeatedly called for moderation and, and not a bold approach to, to policymaking in her role. And if we 
step back on our ambitions, if we step back on our goals, then the kinds of things that I've been fighting for, like gun safety so that other people's kids are not killed in the way that mine was, or healthcare access so that people with pre-existing conditions don't have to worry about having health insurance and having access to healthcare in the way that I, Lucy McBath, who had a pre-existing condition, had to worry about. These are the two issues that have animated her personal story. She could say that Carolyn Bordeaux's approach to politics means that those policies are not likely to be enacted. And in fact, the House has passed bills on all of these things, which both Carolyn Bordeaux and Lucy McBath have voted for, but they don't go anywhere in the Senate because of this push back, trimming back of Democrats' ambitions and their inability to eliminate the filibuster and govern the way that they want to. And Lucy McBath could make that argument and say that her presence in the House is going to help contribute to Democrats being more progressive and more firm in their approach to legislating, and that she is clearly a leg above Carolyn Bordeaux in that respect. But I think the calculation that she's made is she has a large enough lead in the polls. And I don't actually think that it's clear in the 7th Congressional District, even in a a much bluer, a much safer Democratic 7th Congressional District, that what they want from their Democratic representative is a purer, more ambitious, progressive legislator to the point that she's not willing to make that bet. And so you play it safe. You don't create a lot of controversy. You don't create a lot of headlines. And you basically ride your name and your story to the election and if you're in Carolyn Bordeaux's shoes in that in that space, I could see how that would be deeply frustrating to her. Because Carolyn Bordeaux can say she's the one that did the work to flip the district. And now Lucy's just here to take it because she's Lucy McBath. Yeah, that that all reads right to me. Um I think I won't be surprised if there is a runoff in, in this race just because of Don McLeod being there and that she'll get enough votes from keeping one of them from getting over or if Lucy McBath just barely squeaks it through. But I think it'll be a really interesting runoff if there is more time for this race to play out. And I'll be curious what dynamics really shine through because I, I, I agree. This is really a become a race of personalities in a less bad way than usual because <laughs> they they have a they have a different approach to politics of being a representative and and highlight different good things uh rather than you know the usual um you know who would you rather have a beer with kind of policy uh or sort of personality difference excuse me and it's not to say i mean i think to end where we started it's not to say that either of them are a bad choice for this district and the fact that they are running against each other is not the fault of either of them. Um, but you know, I just, I'm a little disappointed in the fact that this has not been a more, a race of a more direct contrast where, uh, you know, the person who's going to come in and take the seat from the incumbent does a little more to earn it. Yeah. And I, you know, the only thing I'll, I'll add to that is I, I think it's a little refreshing to see that, unlike the GOP debates that we've seen where these candidates actually have no real differences between each other. And so it just is completely nasty with the exception of Bordeaux's, I think legitimate criticism that McBath left her old seat in her old district, uh, even though it did change fundamentally, but she did leave it. Um, you know, that, that debate was not nasty. It wasn't as, 
as, you know, how far to the left can I push the ball? It wasn't, you know, going after people's, you know, families or their history. It was really more just talking about their different approaches to the job and, and highlighting what they thought was important. Maybe not in the most clear and precise and direct way, but that that's effectively what I took away from it is that they were focused on the differences of who was best to represent this district and who what type of representative was best. And that compared to the lieutenant governor's race on the Democratic side, which was a lot of making claims they couldn't live up to, and the Republican side of just out crazing each other. That was refreshing to me. Just a couple of final news and notes from other primaries. Um, it was notable that Herschel Walker didn't show up for the Atlanta press club debate. I think he has made a full decision that he does not really have to participate in this race to win it. Um, you know, even candidates who skip other smaller forums, other smaller debates typically participate in the Atlanta press club debate. And I don't know, he just thinks he can win it and, uh, not have to do anything. And, I mean, considering the fact, his way. Well, I was going to say, considering the fact that like Gary Black, who's his most legitimate competitor, is unlikely to break 10%. I think who's he's probably current, right. Gary Black has won statewide races. Multiple times. And he's very popular. And I'm, I, I could be wrong because this is from memory. But I think Gary Black got the highest in 2018 on the Republican side, or at least one of the, he was one of the higher ones, if not the highest. And so it's not like Gary Black was completely unknown and unpopular among Republicans or even the statewide electorate. He's also the only Republican agriculture commissioner that the state has had since reconstruction because Tommy Irvin, longtime democratic agriculture commissioner held that seat for so long. Um, on the, the Republican primary for, Governor, uh, the Purdue campaign looks like it's having kind of its last gasps. Um, obviously, he's going to compete until the end, but David Ralston, the House Speaker, endorsed Governor Kemp this week. Not to say that David Ralston's endorsement is the end-all, be-all, but if Ralston is willing to put his cards on the table and make an endorsement, it's probably because it's pretty clear that that race is settled. With that, I think we are going to leave it there. Uh, we will be back... Eventually. Probably after the primaries to recap... Uh, how they turn out with so many candidates running for so many of these races, the races aren't going to be done. Many of them are going to go to runoff. So there will still be more to talk about, but at least there will be some clearer sort of one-on-one choices for voters in most of these runoffs. With that, we're going to leave it there. We'll be back soon. Y'all take care. We'll talk to you again soon. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.